Hi, I'm Nadine Dichter, and this is Women Are in Treble, Playing Through the Patriarchy. In these next three episodes, we're going to be looking at what it's like for a woman to navigate the music industry. In our first podcast, we're going to be looking at and explaining gender distribution among genres for listeners and artists. And then from there in podcast two, we'll be looking at a bunch of things, including music rankings and record companies through the context of gender. And then we round off our last podcast by looking at gender distribution among instruments. So some of you may be wondering, now Nadine, is there really such a problem with women in music that we need three different episodes to encompass it? And the short answer is yes. In fact, there is more than enough information to keep this podcast going. You see, I started this podcast as a result of my own experiences. I started drumming around the age of nine, and as a 21-year-old, I saw a lot of things through those years where I was like, that's not right. This podcast is not only to show that there are systematic problems, but also for those like me who is like, hey, what's going on? I'm hoping that I can answer some of those questions. Before we get into our real conversation, I want to talk about some concepts. Kate Mann, in her book Down Girl, defines sexism as assigned gender roles, whereas misogyny is the policing of those gender roles. Another really important thing that I want to go over is the concept that there is no universal female experience. Each episode will contain data largely in the form of interviews. However, these interviews are specific to that individual. Your experience may be totally different than those discussed in this podcast, and that's totally fine. That's your experience. It just didn't happen to coincide with this specific set of data. And the interview of a certain individual is in no way supposed to represent their entire group. For instance, you'll be hearing about my own experience as a white female drummer. But that doesn't mean that all white female drummers will have the same experience as me. In fact, most of them may not have similar experiences as me. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into it. Let's first look at some overarching statistics. First, we see, as you would expect, the percentage of women is highest in pop, but it's still only 32.6%. That is a 2.1 to 1 ratio, and that is the highest ratio we see. The next highest is dance and electronic, where we see 21.1% women, and the lowest, which is my personal favorite, is alternative, where there's only 11% women. That is an 8.1 to 1 ratio. Not only do we see an absence of women, but also of artists of color. 35% of the artists in pop are underrepresented, and that's the second highest. Though it means that there may be women of color at a greater rate within pop, it's still not enough. In the USC Annenberg study that looked at pop, hip-hop, alternative, country, R&B, and dance, R&B was the most representative of minorities with 90.9% of the artists compiling this genre. However, only 13% of the artists in this genre were female, meaning that the genre that is most representative of minorities is not including females. So female minorities are being left out. After this, I took to looking at how listeners view genres. And during this research, I found this really cool study by Music Machinery, which was conducted in 2014, so it's a little old. But they looked at how Spotify and music streaming programs cater to a listener's taste when the listener is new, so they have no data on them. And they do this by basically gender stereotypes. They'll collect data of listeners based on their gender, and then when you sign up, that's why they ask you for your gender, and then based on that, they'll present you with the music that was liked most by the gender that you are. 
So there's a list of genres that are most skewed to female listeners, and those are pop, dance pop, contemporary hit radio, urban contemporary, R&B, pretty much anything with pop or contemporary in it. And then you look at the male-skewed genres, and those are rock, hip-hop, album rock, rap, pop rap, indie rock, funk rock, anything rock or rap, and uh, new metal. So why is this a problem? Well, I actually like alternative and rock far more than I like pop and contemporary, but I might never find those genres on my own, and I may be stuck listening to pop and further perpetuating those stereotypes and norms. So now we know a little bit about what influences listeners, but why are female artists locked out of some genres? Let's start with rock, which had one of the worst gender discrepancies. There is a study done by Rutgers University, and they first talked about how rock is seen as this rebellious genre. However, the article argues that rock isn't as rebellious as it portrays itself because it forces its artists into certain stereotypes. In rock, men are forced to portray themselves as sexual and aggressive, and Kate Mann, the, again the author of Down Girl, says that there are certain moral roles that each gender is forced to conform to, and for women that is dainty, quiet, pure, where men are traditionally allowed to be in these loud, aggressive, and sexual roles. So the origins of rock embrace this free and rebellious nature, and that fits within the male moral role. And that's not really desirable, according to society, for women to inherit. I mean, everything in rock embodies power. The instruments, the loudness, the rebellion, and this is fitting the male moral role. Women are not supposed to be powerful. And also, traditionally, politically, women have not a lot of power, whereas... It's more natural for men to have this powerful role in society. The moral rules dictate that women are quiet and submissive, especially around men. This would not only deter women from entering rock and set barriers within the genre itself from letting women in, but this would also deter male listeners from listening to rock because, again, according to these moral rules and stereotypes, women are generally the followers of men in the groupies, and it's And it's not deemed societally acceptable for men to be the groupies and for women to be the one in power and the one with followers. So going back to rock being loud, it is about the total domination of like an auditorial space. And again, that loudness and power is reserved for men. And women are supposed to be this quiet and reserved self. And so it's further perpetuating that women are inferior and powerless. When women do get access into rock, it is in roles of singing and stuff where men are usually controlling what they're doing and the women are there to look pretty and sound good. They're not playing the super loud, aggressive instruments. They're just the voice and the face of the band. A lot of rock bands grew out of like teenage years and like young adult years where they were growing into their masculinity and then therefore asserting it. And a lot of rock songs are about going against the matriarchy, going against their overbearing mothers. So not only are they asserting their male dominance, but they're also going against female power with this with us or against us mentality that is further perpetuating these sexist traditions. A lot of way these rock bands get recognition is through um, rock journals. And this article suggests that they only look at women in six different ways. They either ignore them, always treat women musicians as a novelty, 
They group all females into the same group. They insult female musicians as women and not musicians. And they describe successful females as versions of a male and focus on only female appearances. So let's talk about the first one. Male bands are immortalized. They are forever discussed and we still hear them on the radio today. However, the history of any preceding female rock artists is a race. We no longer hear about them. They're gone forever. So when a new female rocker comes along, it's a really big deal because it seems like she's the only one. And again, these perceptions of power grant access to men and not women. So when a woman does get access, it's not natural. It's a really big mystery. How did she get here? And it's such a big deal. And these moral roles say that women are there to look pretty for men and they're supposed to just be looked at and quiet. So when a female rocker does come along, the media focuses on their their performance, their clothes, their attractiveness, anything other than talent, which perpetuates this idea that their looks and presence are far more important than their talent. And the rebellious history of rock is a little bit forgotten. So now the focus in rock is more on this image, forcing men to really rely on this masculine role because they can't really rebel as hard, so they need to overemphasize that masculinity. This draws even more of a difference between the feminine and masculine portrayals And this allows uh, media to further focus on women as an object and further objectify them and reduce them to these sex objects. And this has happened to the point where women only exist in rock as a sexual object. And this shuts women out because why would women want to enter this role where they're only seen as a sexual object and they're not seen for their talent? The media also uh, perpetuates this toxic masculinity because they comment on how men act and they force men into these more masculine roles where men are criticized for talking about topics that seem feminine like their feelings rather than sex and drugs. These artists are essentially forced into these pre-cast gender roles. And then we see these rock icons that are gender bending, like Elton John and David Bowie. And then they are not perpetuating these hyper masculine ideals. However, they are like the true embodiment of rock because they are rebelling against societal norms. But this article argues that this gender bending in itself draws more attention to sexuality. So outside of this article, I've developed my own theory. There are some famous female rockers out there, one of them being Joan Jett. And I think this is because she played a more androgynous role and she talked about sexuality and she played into this masculinity. And I think this is part of what granted her access. And instead of in the journals them talking about how attractive she was, um, that wasn't the focus of her performance. The focus was being androgynous. And this gender bending and androgyny again rebelled against these norms, further embodying the core of rock and roll. She was, of course, subjected to that novelty idea where she was like the one woman in rock and roll, and she's her and Janis Joplin are the main big names I can think of. And then throughout a lot of the research, the authors of these articles are going to a bunch of rock shows and not seeing any women. And then they get really excited when they do see a woman. And then this is, again, the novelty of seeing a woman actually included in rock. 
So a study done by Mary Ann Clausen and published by the Cambridge University Press further talks about this anomaly of women. There was this article from Rolling Stones that celebrated women in rock, but this also, again, reproduced that marginality. However, this article was based on interviews of male and female musicians, and it was more focused on the early processes of becoming a rock musician, learning how to play, and finding a band. And this study only looked at instrumentalists because it was based on the idea that rock was perpetuated by those loud instruments, and that's where the power and the core of rock and roll was based. Now, for some context, all of those who were interviewed were from middle-class backgrounds and had gone to some college, and they were all white, which is a characteristic of rock that comes from having power because, of course, people of color are, just like women, don't have political power. They don't have that power to claim. This article says that even though rock is largely derived from other black musical forms, it must be seen as a white pop genre, especially in the U.S., of the females who were interviewed, the majority of them were either in office work or service jobs, whereas the men were in blue-collar occupations, like warehouse work and electrician. But some of them did hold professional or managerial employment. So this article talks about, again, how rock has that aggressive and sexual uh, performance and lyrics and all that fun stuff. And growing up listening to rock as a little girl, a lot of these young girls can't see themselves in those roles. They don't aspire to be rock stars like men do because these roles fit them. However, a lot of women still develop these aspirations despite this. And a lot of them said it was because of media figures that inspired them, both male and female. Women still had a hard time getting access after that, and this was uh, partially an ensemble music, which shows that this issue is societal and institutional. A lot of women interviewed expressed their interest in rock by going to a lot of clubs in high school and college, whereas men kind of just fell into a band. And another big characteristic of rock is that it's, the musicians are mostly self-taught, so they model themselves on those that they see on TV, and they don't have that training in like a marching band or ensemble or something. So this boils down to two things. Young rockers have to not only learn how to play their instruments, but they also have to find a group to be in a band with them. And this study found that men typically started playing their instrument much younger than women. They started playing their instrument around 13, whereas women were 18 or 19. And men got into their first band around the age of 16, whereas women didn't find their first band until 21. And this article attributes that to a couple of things. Firstly, genders are usually far more separated in adolescence. I don't know if you remember your like sixth grade dance, but there was very clearly a divide between the girls and the guys, and it was a big deal when that divide was broken. So there wasn't much socialization between men and women, and so men were able to form these bands, whereas women could not, because again, not as many girls were interested in forming bands. The only instances where young boys and young girls really did interact is when there was an adult to push that together. And in the spaces where these young boys were forming bands, there was no adult supervision to force that. And lastly, when you're young, before you can really decide what you want, you're automatically pushed into these roles, into these activities that embrace your gender. So boys were pushed towards the idea of 
becoming musicians and joining a rock band, whereas girls were pushed to things like crafting and Girl Scouts. So for the girls who did want to join a rock band, they had two options. They could either form a band among their female friends, which again, not as many females aspire to be rockers, or they had to cross this barrier of gender and befriend men or young boys. This is why it makes more sense that women would be involved in bands in college because the gender divide wasn't so obvious and it was a lot easier for men and women to socialize. And also because they had that freedom to explore whatever they want and they weren't really pushed into these roles that embrace their gender. And this idea of socializing among the genders uh, is perpetuated by the study, which says that 16% of the men had started their first band with one or more women and these men who did were the ones who started their bands much later like in college what was interesting is that the women who did join bands in high school said that they usually got involved through a friend of a friend and it was through this gender mixing but it wasn't through like boyfriends or something This means that a straight woman did not particularly have more access than a gay woman. And it shows that camaraderie is a big part of rock and that these girls who were involved in bands with boys, especially at a young age, had to be depicted more as one of the boys rather than the girlfriend. The bad news is, is that this camaraderie was a lot more common among men because they had frats and sports as like this bonding activity that they could do. It also helped them find their male identity and perpetuated these masculine roles. Especially sports taught them how to be forceful and occupy space in different ways. So moving back to the more aggressive nature of rock, this article talks about the names of people's first bands And especially at a younger age, these male bands had really masculine and like assertive names. Of the bands that were formed of the at the ages 12 through 14, six of the seven had a male power name, whereas the bands formed 17 and up, all four of them did not have a male power name. And then moving on to the learning of the instrument, a lot of these boys had not mastered their instrument before starting a band, but their bandmates would help them learn how to play an instrument. Like there was one account of a guy, um, his friend saying, hey, you should learn the bass. I know the guitar. I can teach you how to play. And he's like, sure. And they started a band. Whereas women don't really have those com- that camaraderie where they can be taught an instrument. So that's why they start their bands later. They have to learn their instrument first. The women also had more classical training with their instrument where they shifted from that classical training to rock, whereas again, the boys had the camaraderie and they were self-taught. So at the end of this article, they concluded that boys had social and cultural capital where girls didn't have that authority and entitlement to initiate bands. And these girls were not seen as fit to be recruited into the boys' bands. And then 14 out of the 19 women interviewed said that they experienced a lack of respect for their music abilities because they were female musicians. This forced them to prove their competence in a way that was not required by the male musicians. Our last study on rock is from Eastern Kentucky University, and it's again interviewing local level rock musicians. And 10 out of the 15 women interviewed said they were aware of being seen as sex objects by the audience. 
and that they purposefully sexualized the performance for the approval of that audience. They said it was expected and they had to dress the part. The female musicians also complained that the audience usually expected them to sing rather than play because it was expected that female rockers were the vocalists. They also said that the audience would always come up to them and assume that they had learned their talents through men or been granted access through men. The women who were in bands were men, said that they were treated like one of the guys, but they were also expected to behave in a different way. They weren't supposed to behave as one of the guys. This included accentuating their sexuality on stage, but then when they were off stage, they were often slut-shamed, and they were pretty much expected to be sleeping with all the other guys in their band. Those in a band with men also complained that their songs wouldn't be played because it was from the female perspective and it wasn't manly enough. The article concludes saying that it's advantageous to have both men and women in a band because it can appeal to a male and female audience, but the female bandmates are treated poorly. And the article makes a kind of radical statement that says we might conclude that the female singers were hired to sell sex, not produce. So let's look at hip hop that also has a huge disparity between men and women. Firstly, Kimberly Crenshaw talks about hip hop a little bit and how the rhetoric used in hip hop uh, is harmful and perpetuates this sexual objectification view of black women. However, black women are silenced and not allowed to speak out against it because they'll be seen as a traitor of their community by calling out black men. And this is a big argument used to support intersectional feminism because not only does it acknowledge that black women are women, but also that they are black. So I found this article by Miss Magazine published in May 2020, and it talks about how women are regularly sexually assaulted and kicked out of the hip-hop industry, especially after they stand up for themselves. One thing this article talks about is how much is lost when a woman is pushed out. Like, oh, she was doing so much in her 20s, imagine what she could have done. And my issue is this, is that they're not talking about the harm done to the individual, they're talking about the harm done to the industry. And they're talking about it from like a capitalistic monetary perspective. Like, oh, she could have been so famous, she could have done so much, made so much money. And I think we should look about it from a more humanistic perspective. So why is it so much worse for black women in hip hop? Well, first of all, in hip hop, there is this hypersexualization of black women, but it's tolerated by dominant culture in ways that it wouldn't be if it were about white women. There was also a big problem with colorism. Uh, a lot of light-skinned artists were seen as conventionally attractive, and there was a big producer, Simmons, who was infamous for expressing this colorism. This falls into some issues discussed in the book Hood Feminism, where the author Kendall talks about black women having to conform to traditionally white beauty standards, which gives privilege to lighter-skinned individuals and perpetuates that colorism, even within the black community. This article was especially hard for me to read because it talks about the regular assault of women and colorism perpetuated by the same producer, Simmons, who is still in the industry and regularly pushing women out. In her book, Check It While I Wreck It, Gwendolyn Poe talks about the same things and how the rhetoric of rappers and the portrayals in rap videos is extremely harmful and again perpetuates that sexualization and objectification of black women that goes unchecked by black men and the white community. 
leaving no one to speak out against it because if black women were to, they'd be seen as a traitor to their own community. Moving on to alternative, Billboard posted a article in 2018 talking about how there was only five women in the alternative top 40 and how it was largely because of radio stations. It talks about how a lot of those in the radio industry are men, so there's not a lot of women in the decision making, and so it's an all-boys world that just plays boys' music and perpetuates it. Instead of playing new hits by female artists like Kay Flay and St. Vincent, alternative radio stations keep playing the same old alt like Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nirvana, and they say it's because the male audience is more vocal about what they want to hear, which could be, again... A result of those gender um, moral roles where men are allowed to be assertive and say what they want, whereas women have to be quiet and submissive. The radio stations say they're more concerned with money and being successful, as in they're not going to put something in the heavy rotation just because they need a female artist. They say it's got to be good. They say that they don't mean to discriminate against women they just listen to a song for 90 seconds and then rate it and those are the songs that they play and that's just how it happens to lie but the article says that radio companies may question female artists more as in wondering if they are a good musician and not just focus on the song as they would with male musicians because again these women need to prove that they are talented and competent in order to gain the male approval In 2012, the New York Times did an article inspired by The Hunger Games because it featured a song from the 70s electronic producer Lori Spagel, and her song had come back all these years later. So since her song came back and was used in The Hunger Games, the New York Times interviewed her, and she talked about her entering the electronic field when it was brand new. And she said that any technical enterprise was kind of viewed as like man's work and quote, men have a way of bonding around technology, unquote. Another female pioneer of the electronic music was Olivieros, and she said there seems to be an invisible barrier that treats women as helpless beings. She credits gaining access through small independent record labels and by being taught by those men who did have access. Now, my research may be a little biased because I love rock and I myself am a female rocker and I don't actually listen to a lot of country music. So I actually don't have a lot of research around country music, but a meme did come up on my Instagram page and I thought I should include it in this podcast and it says, Male country songs, I got my truck, my beer, my dog. And then it says female country songs in cursive writing, I'm going to kill my husband. And this can again be attributed to those moral roles, whereas women can talk about their feelings and they talk about how they were wronged, whereas men talk about masculine things like their truck and beer. So there was this study done by East Tennessee State University, and it talks a lot about the theory behind punk and how women are granted access. One of the first things it says is that men are kind of like the gatekeepers to the music industry just because they usually have the roles of the music journalists and music critics, um, and that's why they have a lot of the historical record. So while punk was largely a big success for women, partially because it was focused on amateurism and DIY, and I would like to argue that men were probably more comfortable letting women into these like amateur and DIY roles, 
The study still says that there were a bunch of things barring women from accessing it, like the male gatekeepers, monetary constraints, no role models and representation, the sexualization of women, familial restraints, and restrictive gender roles. So thinking back to men being charged of music journalism, they were usually the ones who deemed who was worthy of credit. And they usually said that women could only gain credit through their bodies, not in those exact words, of course, but through depiction of them in a sexual sense. Music journalists also distinguish male from men by saying something as female and using it to show a specific different musical genre that did not include men. It's specialized from the men. So a lot of women exploited their sexuality to get that access, but they were often criticized for doing that, and also it uh, took away from their legitimacy as as an artist. Of course, this expression of sexuality got a lot worse when MTV came around, where women had to perform in a sexual aspect. Bringing TV into the mix really shifted from a focus on talent to a focus on image. I actually took issue with something that this article said because it said a lot of female pop performers often claim empowerment as an excuse of their sexual performances in spite of ultimately getting naked to be heard. And one, that's slut shaming. And second of all, the whole point of the article is they're talking about that women kind of have to do this to get visibility and access. And then they're shaming women for doing this. And I was like, what are you talking about? The article also talked about how women are more amped to be described as hysterical or a control freak and how in rock and roll women are more expected to be fans and the men are expected to be the musicians that the women are adoring over, which again reinforces these binary roles where the men are the innovators and the women are the appreciators. A big way how women did get access into this punk rock realm is because it was largely based on the third wave of feminism and it was that rock girl movement and it was really embracing the anti-conformist ideology that rock is really based on and so when women were excluded from this movement it again was like really contradicting this whole rock is rebellious because they were excluding women who are trying to rebel from the female moral role. But this uh, DIY kind of ideal of punk rock inspired a lot of musicians, especially women who didn't have access, to record their own stuff, plan their own tours, and market on their own. And this is kind of how they got access without having to go through men or begging men for access or having to sexualize themselves for men's approval to get access. So even though there was still a big discrepancy of women in rock, they kind of carved out their own space through these external avenues. So not having to go through the male gaze, a lot of other types of body types were allowed into punk rock and those who didn't fit the conventional beauty norms. And this whole DIY aspect didn't require insane amounts of money like these were like cheaper instruments and stuff were being used allowing those who weren't just white middle class to get access and this type of music was very angry so a lot of women could bring up political issues like rape and abuse and this was how they often reached other women and again they didn't have to go through men so they could talk about these issues um but a lot of theorists said this didn't sustain an opening in music for women because it was very angry and very intense and it wasn't sustainable 
This article also talked about how women usually started out with classical training in the piano, clarinet, and flute. And in the third podcast, we'll talk about maybe why that is. Whereas the boys were socialized towards rock and they got the unconventional training in rock instruments. So girls kind of took their classical training and applied it to rock music. In this study, none of the female musicians that were interviewed were pushed towards rock, whereas they had brothers or siblings who were. And a lot of those playing instruments said that audience members would be shocked, but also very pleased with their playing. But then they would get compliments saying, wow, you're good for a girl. Like, they're not just good. They're only good because they're a girl compared to other girls, which is really insulting. So when you think of a rock icon, you also think of a sex icon. And it was very normalized that male rock stars would be sexually active while on tour. However, female act uh, musicians It was assumed that they were having sex with everyone in their band, and they were slut-shamed for that, even if they weren't actually having sex with the people in their band. So female rockers thought they had to play this role of being slutty, even though that if they did play this role, they wouldn't be taken seriously. This often resulted in female musicians being praised by saying they looked hot up there rather than saying, oh, you sounded really good. A lot of female musicians were also told that they had to be tough, Um, but this is bad because not only is it removing them from that female norm, saying, oh, you can't be feminine in rock, and it also says that you have to be part of that dominant group. You have to have that power. So this is like, again, moving with society rather than against it. A lot of women also reported leaving the music industry because of self-doubt, self-sabotage, and the decision to be a mother. And um, society tells women that they have to stay home and take care of the child. So they can't really do both. They can't be going on tour and taking care of their child. So that's why men are allowed to just go off and live their music careers, whereas women, if they want to have children, they can't really do both. And this article actually says motherhood is one of the greatest things that pushes women out of the music industry. Even if women could take their children on tour, it costs a lot of money and some money that a lot of these bands, which are mid-level, are not actually making. So what can we do that will have a long sustained impact on letting women into the music industry? And this is where I look to, the again, the book Down Girl by Kate Mann. And one of the first things she suggests is looking through the pe- female perspective, not the male naive conception. And the reason we should do this is because when we look through the male perspective, say someone is accused of rape, we look at all the other interactions he's had with women and it's like, oh, he's so good to his wife. Oh, he's so sweet to his daughter. He can't be a bad guy. Um, We're looking again at the male rather than the female, the one who is raped. And when, when we look at like, oh, this is what he did to her life. He ruined her life. He must be bad. The reason this helps us in the music realm is because this is how she suggests we should combat misogyny. Um, It gets rid of that psychological and structural manifestations. Misogyny is this police force that polices these gender roles and not only punishes those who defy it, but also rewards those who do abide by them. And so that's why we see that if women are providing sex, which these moral roles say they should, then they are granted access into the music industry. They are rewarded. They could also be punished, though, because they are demanding attention rather than just giving it to men, which is what the moral roles dictate they should be doing. Another really important idea that Kate Mann brings up is that these moral roles can be demanded and expected from women, but it can't be by men. And that could be why 
these music journalists are so harsh on women and not on men. I actually got to conduct some of my own research and I got to interview Ellie Palmer and I'll put my introduction of her here. But she also talked about her real life experiences and how they pertain to Kate Manns in the previous research that I just mentioned. So today I'm with Allie Palmer, who is a singer, songwriter, artist, and activist, who is most known for working with Betty um, and being involved with and having their music featured in The L Word and a bunch of other TV shows. Um, You created The Betty Effect. um, And uh, how do you say 101, one at one? One at one. Um, One at one productions. One, One of my finest hours, I must say. Yeah. So... What genre would you consider Betty to be? I, oh, that I, is so funny. That is the number one question. No, the, the number two question. The number one question is, why the name Betty? But the second question is always, what what kind of music are you? What is it that you do? So I'm going to turn that question around to you now that you've listened to Betty. What do you think? I would say short answer, rock. <laughs> like pop, <laughs> rock, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's good I think so too I think that, that uh, the idea of rock is a very broad one you know what I mean most people put it's just like you put something in front of African I mean in front of American you say African American or Chinese American I think it's just something something rock Betty is no. like something rock is how I look at it too and for a while we were just saying alt because alt seemed like a nice term so that's kind of what we say is we say we're an alt rock band among other things I guess the first thing I, I'd like to ask you is have you ever experienced those ve- those barriers? And then like, what was your own uh, solution to that? Nadine, the question you're asking is so much bigger than the music business. Because if you're talking about why there's this disparity in equity between men and women, you have to look at the entire society. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that women are possession and their, their greatest power is when they are possessions still to this day in 2020, kind of, it, it's it undergirds everything to me in in my view of it, which is um, why yes we've had my band in particular Betty three women and three very vocal very opinionated women who've been activists from the very first gig that we ever did in Washington D.C. back in the eighties. Um, Betty's been together. Side note: Betty's been together since nineteen eighty six. And our very first gig was a protest about Reagan and Reagan's policies. So that's how long we've been doing this. And that's probably one of the reasons why most bands do not make it past three years, let alone 34 or however many years it's been that we've been doing this. But I think it's our politics that have sort of kept us together the whole time. You know, as long as there is a need for our voices, we have made our voices available. And unfortunately, that that, that need has never lessened. Mm. You know, it's still out there. But um. Have I run across any situations where my sex itself stopped me from achieving the same thing that men have? Yes. What woman in America hasn't? You know what I mean? And then add to that, I'm African-American. So add to that, that, and add to that, that I'm like staunchly liberal. And, and you know, it just, it just made it a little bit more difficult. So what my band did from the very get-go is kind of what I've done my entire life and what they've done their entire lives and why we clicked so well is when the door slams, we've always been not even going through windows. We're like, climb up on the roof and drop down the chimney, do whatever you need to, to get to where you need to. So we've always taken the outside path. And every time we've gone to a situation where 
they've gone in to speak to record labels or um, the head of Fox television wanted to do a television show, just all these big corporate meetings along the way. One of us has said or done something that has completely <laughs> ruined the meeting, but <laughs> But it was like our principles that we stood up for the entire time. And, you know, and that's what happens, unfortunately, mm-hmm. especially talking to, to uh, I won't say his name, but the guy that was in charge of Fox television 18, 15, 17 years ago, something like that, who came in and he's, he, he came in with such an attitude about who we were and who our audience was, because our audience has always been, you know, strong women empowered people. So, you know, some of those are going to be lesbian or queer. I mean, of course, why not? Mm. women are women are women but he was like well I noticed that you have a really large lesbian following and you know you, you kind of can't go past that in a meeting so yeah. we just we were, we were on full-on like you know who are you dude screw you I tried I'm the nicest one of the three of us and so I did try to find some diplomatic way but by the end of it we just knew it was the wrong place to be but you know whatever we've had this incredible career we've had so much fun for so long we were just talking about this because we have a holiday show coming up on December 18th it's going to be a live live stream show from City Winery and we were just talking about the fact you know pals we've been doing this for so long this is crazy and laughing and like drinking eggnog while we were talking and it's it's amazing so long as you can find yourself your group as long as you can find yourself your tribe to help you get through when doors are closing in front of you it's what women have always done and it's what we do I think with a lot of flair do you feel like you guys are one of the few being an all women's rock band what? No, hell no. Are you kidding? There's a million all-female rock bands. But yeah. I know so many all-female all bands and kick-ass, killer, amazing bands, starting with Fanny. I was living in the Philippines when Fanny was big, and they were one of the first rock bands that was all chicks at the time, all chicks. And they're wonderful people, too. June Millington, is, she has um, the Institute for Musical Arts, or she's still like kicking ass and rocking and they were out there and since Fanny on there are so many all-female bands and I'm delighted to play with them whenever I get an opportunity to one of my favorite right now is a band called Skip the Needle and I've I've done two different um, productions. I, I produce events, musical events and online. It's been really fun to do that too. And there were two this year. And in both of them, I use Skip the Needle. So if people go to womentakethestage.org, the band plays there and also in This Moment Rally. This band is amazing and so full of joy and power and love and sisterhood and feminism and, and Black powerness. And they're just awesome. I love Skip the Needle. And there's lots of them out there. So I guess there's a couple of big takeaways that I got from my interview with Allie. The first one being that even though statistically women are shut out and there's a big disparity of gender within genres, there are still a lot of women entering. And when you think about how massive the music industry is, 8% is still like thousands and thousands of women. And I mean, it's not perfect, but we're getting access and we're granting access to more and more women. Um, and we're making steps. It was just so powerful to hear her talk. And it was really insightful to get to hear it from the source. Someone who's like on the ground level doing activism to get women involved in music. And really knows the struggle and is marinated in it within every aspect of her career. And I am really thankful she did an interview with me. And we'll be talking a bunch about a lot of other things that she mentioned in our next episodes. Because they pertain to those topics. 
So obviously we're aware of how misogyny affects women in the music industry and we kind of talked about and looked at how we could combat that but that's still like a really cumbersome task. So what are some other things we can do? Well first of all we can listen to women musicians and we can listen to the experiences of women in music and then adjusting our own behaviors according to that and also doing research that includes women that identifies these biases and everything that affects women in these music industries so that is all we have for gender and genre in the next episode we're going to be talking about gender on the billboards and in record companies so stay tuned for that and i'll see you next week stay safe out there ladies